Well, it's really an honour beyond words for me to be introducing a man whose boots I am literally not worthy to lift, probably the world's greatest philosopher of science, all the way from beautiful downtown Cratch End, John Worrell. Thank you very much. Too kind, too kind. Accurate, but too kind. Uh, anyway, uh, so being seriously then, my name is John Worrell, I'm from the Department of Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Method, and this is my title. Uh, at least for the purposes of this talk at least, is my hero, although in other respects I think he's a bit of a villain. Uh, this is David Hume, the 18th century Scottish philosopher, historian, and as you can tell from his waistline, Bon Viver. Uh, he, and uh, the only thing I'm going to take from him is a nice little quote that seems to me a very good way. Uh, to organise your life, a wise man proportions his belief to the evidence. It was this that led him to be uh, a very unrelenting atheist, very thinking atheist, long before Darwin. Nobody could have been a sensible atheist before Darwin. Anyway, I'm going to put religion to one side. It seems to me at least outside that re re uh, region, and I don't really see why it should be outside, but anyway, let's for these purposes assume that. Uh, that seems to me almost trivially true. We should always base our beliefs on the evidence. What else are we going to base them on? I'm going to talk a little bit about evidence for this in, in this talk and then give you plenty of chance to ask questions. I'm going to cha I change the focus just a little bit compared to the abstract. I talked there about evidence in social science. Rather, I think it would be more interesting to look at social policy or policy in general, decision-making in general, and the role of evidence uh, in that, where the evidence comes from any science, social or natural. Uh, it's clear, if you think about it, that every social policy decision involves a mixture of ethical and factual issues. Uh, so take one relatively minor example, the decision to ban smoking in pubs and restaurants that was recently taken. There's obviously there at least, I mean there are other factors as well, a mixture of ethical issues about the value of individual liberty on the one hand versus the disvalue of affecting other people's health on the other. I think uh, that, that those ethical issues are likely to be objectively intractable. I'm afraid I'm a relativist in ethics, except by voting, so to speak. But on the factual issue, there's a quite separate factual issue, namely about the extent of the, the, the real extent of risk from secondary smoking. And on the factual issue, we surely want to think that we should be able to arrive at objective judgments about the factual claims. Of course, defeasible evidence may accumulate and overturn the judgment we originally made, but there should be one correct judgment about the this present state of the evidence concerning the factual claim about the risks involved in secondary uh, smoking. Um, the claims involved in pretty well every decision and it's certainly every policy are strictly speaking theories. They're not things that we can know absolutely for sure. Uh, but we should surely base our acceptance of such theories on evidence. What else, as I say, are we going to base them on? Myth, superstition, tea leaves, gut feelings, all of those are obviously less good. So let's take a few examples. Uh, decision makers in the NHS needed to take a view on whether there's a link between the MMR vaccine and autism, as has notoriously been claimed. Legislators need to take a view on whether global warming is occurring, and if so, to what extent. I need to take a view on whether a couple of glasses of red wine a day is good for preventing heart attacks, and therefore by a well-known principle, four glasses is very good for preventing heart attacks, uh, and so on. It'd clearly be pretty dumb not to base 
uh, one's view of how the world is or is likely to be, uh, and hence one's decision on the evidence, if at all possible. Of course, sometimes we may not have the evidence, but surely we should look for it and uh, base ourselves on it whenever possible when making decisions or formulating policies. Well, the other suggestion is that, that if you're a policymaker and you're not yourself a scientist, that, you, that this will mean that you're in trouble because you would think that you have to be a scientist yourself to take a sensible view of the evidence for any theoretical claim, whether a fancy one in fundamental physics or a less fancy one about whether uh, two glasses of red wine a day is good for your heart. Um, but what I want to suggest today, just briefly obviously in this lecture, is that certainly anyone, uh, scientist or not, can learn to be a more critical consumer of evidence by asking the right questions. And I'm going to suggest that the, question, the right questions to ask are altogether simpler than you might think. And it's amazing, despite the simplicity of these questions, how seldom they're actually asked and how powerful they can be, despite the triviality, I think, of the principles underlying, underlying them. Uh, the way I'm going to get into them is the uh, Socratic method, if you like. I'm going to look at some examples of faulty reasoning about evidence and use the, fault, the, the, the faults in these uh, bits of reasoning about evidence to illustrate the general principles that I want to uh, articulate and recommend. Now, they're not all going to be, because policy is obviously a rather complex situation, all, all of these lessons are, I promise you, very highly relevant to social policy across the board, but most of the cases I'll be looking at actually from, uh, from medicine, um, where these issues have been extensively uh, discussed and investigated, uh, oh, they do apply, as I say, much more generally. Um, okay, so I'm going to look at uh, five cases, the one I've already mentioned in the MMR and autism, uh, so-called genetic fingerprinting and its use in the courts, Again, in a way, a policy issue because you know, if you, certainly if you're if you're in the jurors, if you're a juror, then you need to take a if you like a decision, so a policy decision about whether you should find the person guilty or not. And if part of the evidence that you're given is genetic fingerprinting evidence, then you need to be able to interpret that evidence properly. Something that Oliver Gilly, in a fine book called Sunlight Robbery, uh, the case of statins. Uh, and evidence-based medicine and the law, you'll see what these mean. I may not get onto the last one because we've, we've not got endless time. Okay, let's first of all talk about MMR and autism. As, as you'll all remember, I'm sure the triple vaccine for measles, mumps and rubella is standard prophylaxis around the world, but was the centre of a big row in the UK at the beginning of this century. Uh, Blair attacks MMR scaremongers as one headline. Tory, Tory call for single jabs as another. It was in 2002. Poll finds disapproval of Blair's stance over MMR vaccine. Three out of four patients favour single jabs for MMR. An epidemic of fear was another headline. Uh, defiant parents stand by decision, even though there was and continues to be a much higher rate of, of measles than was true before this scare. Blair warning as measles panic grows, it would have been a lot better if he'd had said, well, it would have been a lot better if he'd had Leo uh, in, inoculated and then said that he had. Of course, he notoriously refused to comment on that, but then he was a terrible, remains a terrible hypocrite. Um, this is the one headline that I agree with. Anecdote is no guide to the MMR question. That's from The Guardian of uh, 2002, as most of these words probably tells you which paper I read. Um, okay, so what do I want? What, there's lots of issues, obviously, around this whole, idea, uh, whole problem of MMR and autism. Uh, I just want to f focus on one 
relatively simple part of it. Uh, I listened, as I always do, to the Today programme when this thing was bubbling along, and they had several uh, representatives from parents' bodies um, being interviewed about uh, MMR, and you got quotes like this, which I actually wrote down, jumped up out of bed and wrote down, my child is living proof that the MMR vaccine causes autism. Uh, and another one said, I know personally now of literally hundreds of children who have become autistic as a result of the MMR vaccination. Well, what's hard, of course, goes out to these parents uh, with the problems that they've got with autistic children, but with, with due respect, that's not at all what they do know and what the evidence that they had at least says. There undoubtedly was... Uh, there are a number of diagnoses of autism and a number of children given MMR increased together over the same period. That's certainly true. There was an increase in both of these two uh, factors at the same time. But, of course, it doesn't follow that there's evidence for a causal link between those two. It doesn't follow from the fact that your child was given the MMR jab and did develop autism, that it was because they were given the MMR jab that they developed autism. The, ev the evidence, at least at this level, I mean, there's more... Uh, and uh, more complex stuff about physiological stuff about link between Crohn's disease and various intestinal disorders and so on. But the evidence at this level and the ones that these parents were going on was just uh, was not evidence for causality but only of co-occurrence. Uh, and whenever uh, philosophers are in need of making a simple point sound deeper, they turn to Latin. And this is what's the, the possible uh, fallacy that you might make in inferring from a correlation to a cause from. A, a, the fact that two variables have increased together to the claim that one's caused the other is often called in philosophy the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy, and it's incredibly trivial and amazing how often this fallacy is actually uh, committed. Okay, so lesson one that I want, want to take from this first uh, case is ask whether you really do have evidence that the, co the connection is causal. Um, let me give you my favourite example of a there are single case post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacies and statistical uh, post-hoc ergo-propter-hoc fallacies. My favourite example of a single case is uh, the story of a uh, young journalist who hears that there's a person out in the outback of Peru who's reached the amazing age of 135, so she goes out to interview this person, finds him in this two-room shack in a village in Peru, and yes, indeed, he is 135, and she asks him the usual question. Question, eventually having asked him several other questions, what do you attribute your longevity to? What do you attribute your longevity to? He says, no sex, no drinking, and no smoking. Uh, in, however, during the whole of this interview, she keep, the, the, the reporter get, keeps getting distracted by what's going on in the other room in this two-room shack. There's smoke coming up from underneath the, the door, and there's tinkling of glasses, and there's giggles, feminine giggles coming on from there. Next door. And eventually she gets up the courage and says, what's, what's going on next door? She, he said, and this guy says, oh, don't worry, it's just Dad having uh, a drink and a smoke for <laughs> the girls from the village. <laughs> okay, so the, I'm glad you laughed because the point is, obviously, that he, he didn't smoke and he didn't drink and he didn't have sex, but that doesn't mean that was why he reached 135. Obviously, in this case, it sounds like there's some genetic uh, element. Lots of statistical ones that are more important. So the probability that you'll die on day N, given that you were admitted to hospital on day, on day N minus 1, is a lot greater than the probability that you'll die on any given, on any given day, N just being a variable here. Okay? You're, the probability that you'll die the next day, given you are currently in, 
being taken into hospital is obviously bigger than the probability that you'll die if you're not taken into hospital, which is actually equivalent to this condition here. But, I mean, putting aside superbugs, which obviously is another issue, but in general, this is not clearly indicative of a causal connection between you would, uh, or at least you would need some evidence, more evidence simply that this probability turned out to be true when we looked at the evidence, uh, that more evidence on top of that, that there was actually a causal connection, that it was a bad idea uh, to be admitted to hospital. Uh, another example that, that any of you may have uh, done statistics here long ago, if you were recommended to read a wonderful book by Daryl Huff called How to Lie with Statistics, this is an example that he gives. Uh, apparently the probability of being a dame with a large family, uh, given that, that there are storks on, nesting on your roof, is a lot greater than the probability that you're a dame with a large family. But obviously this doesn't lend, you would say, intuitively. So there's this correlation, there's an increase of one variable associated with the other. There are many more people with large families with stalks on the roost than don't have stalks on the roost within the Danish population. But you don't want to say that that necessarily leads to any credence for standard stories about how babies arrive and the role of stalks uh, therein. So clearly, it matters practically whether a connection is causal. You've noticed some two, that the fact that two factors seem to have increased together, that whether they're causal or not is clearly important. It wouldn't have been a very good policy for the Danish government to sweep, if they wanted to reduce the birth rate, to sweep stalks and nests off roofs, uh, because the connection presumably isn't causal, whereas if indeed there is a causal connection between MMR and autism, then stopping giving people MNR ought to reduce the incidence of autism. Okay, so what, you've got to, what, what you need to ask in general, and this is a general, very powerful general principle, although, as I say, initially quite trivial, you have to ask what else might explain the observed connection. This is some, a principle that was, that's very much a part of the philosophy of, my, of the person who set up our department, namely Cole Popper, and pretty well everybody else who's thought about philosophy of science. The evidence... If you don't have evidence against the what else, you don't really have at least any strong evidence for the connection being causal. In general, the best evidence for a theory is something that the theory accounts for, but which at the same time counts against plausible rivals. So what, 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 other could, what, what else could it have been in, in the case, for example, of being admitted to hospital and dying? Well, one possibility is that there is indeed a direct causal connection. The arrows here indicating causal connection, so that there's some connection between being admitted to hospital and dying, again, laying aside superbugs and so on. But rather, what's this? This is, seems, to be, seems to be at least an equally plausible, in fact, more plausible suggestion. Namely, it's the fact that you're being ill that's a common cause, as people say in the literature, for both being admitted to hospital on day N and dying on day uh, N plus 1. There's some underlying factor that explains the correlation. It's not a direct correlation between, between these two variables of being admitted to hospital and dying. And the other possibility is that two things are just increased together independently, and that's certainly possible, at least in the case of MMR and autism. It does seem that people are much readier now, doctors are much readier now to diagnose people as being on the autistic spectrum. So there's been an independent reason why there's been an increase in, uh, in numbers of diagnoses of autism alongside the increase in the, num in the number of MMR. But at least the number developed being given MMR. At least you've got no evidence of a, of a causal connection between those two unless you've ruled out right, the, this rival possibility. 
Okay, so the main lesson is always ask what else might explain the observed connection. Very powerful principle. If you don't have evidence against the what else, you don't have evidence for the connection being causal, as I said. Okay, second example uh, that I want to talk about is genetic fingerprinting. And again, lots of you'll find lots of headlines about the role of DNA in the law and how powerful a principle, a powerful an innovation it's been, and no doubt that's true. Uh, this is a genetic fingerprint. I'm sure you know about it, but there's a a worry. It's been uh, catalogued by my colleague Steve uh, Mike in the law department. Uh, that genetic fingerprinting is, although a very powerful tool, is being misused in some cases because of people's misunderstanding of the principles of evidence in, in legal cases. Okay, so let's think about this. Uh, so suppose Joe Bloggs provides a DNA sample that matches DNA from the, from the crime scene, and we're told that the match probability is one in a million. Now, you ought to be worried about those things anyway. Even the people who produce these things that say that these numbers are a little bit plucking numbers out of the air, but let's not worry about that for these, for these cases. What that means, uh, a match probability of one in a million means that the probability that someone randomly selected from the population will have DNA that matches the sample is one in a million. So if you put all the names of people from the UK in a hat and drew out a name at random, then the probability that they would have this particular DNA is one in a million. Is that evidence that there's only a one in a million chance that the, that the defendant is innocent? There's good meta-level evidence that, in fact, many people in the, in the law and many people in jurors' rooms do interpret it that way. And that would, of course, mean that there's 999,999 chances in a million that he's guilty. And that sounds like it should count like guilt beyond reasonable doubt for Joe Bloggs on any account of this notoriously vague term, beyond reasonable doubt. Many people do interpret it that way, and it's wrong. To see that it's wrong, take another example. Uh, suppose there are two taxi firms in some city, uh, the blue cabs and the yellow cabs. The blue cabs have a terrible accident record. 50% of, on average of blue cabs will be involved in an accident during the course of a year. Whereas the yellow cabs employ only careful drivers and only 5% of yellow cabs on average will be involved in an accident during the course of any given year. Okay, now, fact, you see an, an accident involving a cab but the street lighting is not good enough to decide whether it was yellow or blue, and you're asked by the police, was it yellow or blue? Uh, and you try and calculate what, what, which taxi company is more likely to be involved. Well, the answer is that many when many people ask the, about this, they'll say it's much more likely to be a blue cab. But of course, that's, you can't add, the, the, the right response is that you can't tell unless you know how many blue cabs there are compared to yellow cabs. Suppose the blue cabs is tiny, only, it, it only has 100 cabs on the road in this city, whereas yellow cabs is much bigger, it has 2,000 cabs in operation. In, in that case, in any given year, even though 50% of the blue cab, of the reckless blue cab drivers will have an accident, 50, there'll be just 50 on average that will have uh, such an accident out of the 100, whereas even though the yellow cab people are much more uh, careful and only 5% of those have an accident, then 100 will uh, have an accident in any, in any year on average. So it's actually uh, twice as likely that the accident you heard about will involve a careful yellow cab than a reckless blue cab. This is just an illustration of a very powerful principle in the foundation of statistics called Bayes' theorem. 
But we don't need to work. You, you can see it from this simple illustration in terms of what Gigarenza calls natural frequencies. And the same thing applies in the DNA case. Suppose, and this is very unlikely to be the case in actual court cases, although there are cases where it has been the, 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 the only evidence of any substance, and, and uh, Redmayne shows how miscarriages of justice have occurred because of it. Suppose that the only evidence against Joe Bloggs is the DNA match. If that's the only evidence, then anyone in the country at the time could have done it, including, of course, him. There were roughly 60 million of those, assuming that this is a blood or saliva sample rather than semen, which would obviously cut it roughly in half. More than half. So, thinking it through, there's the guilty person whose DNA will, let's assume, definitely match. And then there's roughly 60 innocent people whose DNA will match by chance, because there's one in a million chance that you'll get a random, that you'll get a match just by chance, as people say, and there are 60 million people who might have done it. I mean, this is obviously idealising somewhat because there's people going in and out of the country and so on, but roughly that's going to be the case. So, in fact, if that's all the evidence that you've got, far from it being the case that the probability that Jay, uh, Joe Bloggs is, is guilty is 999,999 in a million, it's rather roughly 1 in 61. So far from being massively odds-on that he's guilty, it's quite substantially odds-against that he's guilty, and that 1 in 61 doesn't sound like beyond reasonable doubt on anybody's, uh, on anybody's calculation. Uh, and it, as I say, it's known that, these, uh, that such fallacies are committed because people forget about the base rate. So that's the second lesson. First lesson, ask what else it might be. You've not really got evidence for a, a causal claim in particular if you don't have evidence against other plausible explanations of the same data. The second uh, second. Uh, lesson is worry about the base rate. If you're given evidence about risk or probability, you can't judge its evidential value unless you know the base rate, that is, what the prior probability is, unless you know what, how many people might have been guilty, how many people, how many yellow cabs there were compared to blue cabs on the road, then you can't make any sensible estimates. So let, this won't apply to many of you, though it's increasingly pressing for me. Suppose you tested positive in a PSA test. PSA means prostate-specific antigen. So this is a test for prostate cancer. And you're told that this means you're sadly overwhelmingly likely to have prostate cancer, as you could easily be by a non-statistically savvy doctor, which means most doctors. Uh, because the false positive uh, rate uh, of this test is only one in a thousand. That is, there's only one out of every thousand tests that are, that are performed which turn out to be positive for PSA, only one of those people will not, in fact, have the disease. That's what the false positive rate means. So it sounds, again, like you've only got a one in a thousand chance of not having prostate cancer if you've tested positive on this test. But again, if, you th if, if, that, if, it's a very, if it's very rare for people to have prostate cancer, which I'm picking figures out of there, but it's, it, it's fairly rare, suppose that only one in 50,000 people on average who take the test do, in fact, have prostate cancer, then your real chance of having the disease is roughly 1 in 51 for the same calculation as we did with the, with the yellow cows and the blue cows. The false positive rate is this, but that doesn't mean that, the prob that that's the probability that you, that, uh, you will get, an, that despite not having the disease, uh, you've tested positive. What you want is the probability that you've got the disease given that, you've got th that you tested positive, which is quite a different probability. And it involves the base rate. And once we put this low base rate in, then that's the... Uh, that's the real chance that you'll get the disease. Okay, so second lesson then, think about the base rate. You can't assess risk without knowing the base rate. 
Okay, case three relates to a nice book that was recently published by Oliver Gilley called Sunlight Robbery. And it relates to the fact that the advice for many years from Cancer UK is to avoid exposure to sunlight completely in in the UK. Obviously, this is relative to the UK. It's very good advice to be very careful in Australia, obviously. But in the UK, it's not so clear as we'll see. Uh, That's because there is good evidence, there's no doubt, of increased risk of melanoma and other skin cancers associated with exposure to sunlight. But now there's increasing evidence that an effect of this policy has been to significantly decrease vitamin D levels in the UK population. You produce your own vitamin D, and and therefore that there's been a a, a greatly increased uh, number of people suffering from vitamin D deficiency illnesses, even illnesses like rickets, which had been more or less eliminated. The evidence suggests that, at least according to Gilly, and it needs careful analysis, of course, that given the UK climate, it's a good idea to get your shirt off, as he likes to say, whenever the sun's out, which is not very often, at least for an hour every day. I mean, again, this wouldn't be good advice in Australia, but in cloudy old England, this is a very good, very good idea, maybe very, overall a very good thing, because again, it is known physiologically that uh, sunlight stimulates vitamin D pr- production. So, many of you studied uh, economics here will know that a lot depends in rational decision making on maximising expected utility. But what's important to remember, and what's often forgotten, it's a, again, ma- this is a very simple principle, but again, amazingly often how it's forgotten, that that involves looking at the downside of the decision, that is, the probability that there will be negative effects and their disutilities, as well as looking at the, at the upside. There's no doubt that you decrease your chance of getting melanoma or other skin cancer by staying out of the sun, but every policy decision, every personal decision has a downside, and you've got to work out what the downside is and what the, what the probability of getting the downside is. So, lesson three, again, very simple, you need evidence for the whole picture, seems to make sense, doesn't it? Clear evidence that exposure to sun causes skin cancer, so a good idea to keep out of the sun. But no, because there's always a downside, and it seems that, at least in this case, uh, the downside is significant. You need evidence about the downside too in order to do your expected utility calculation. Okay, so, so far, three simple principles. Don't think you've got evidence for a cause unless you've got evidence for alternative. At the same time, the evidence is against plausible alternatives. Don't make assessments of risk based on the evidence unless you know the base rate. Don't be seduced into making half of an expected utility calculation in effect by forgetting the downside. People forget this all the time. Just now, I think just last week in the BMJ, this advice that's been common now for years that it's a good idea to take an aspirin a day prophylactically turns out to be incorrect. Because the downside, namely the effect on stomach lining outweighs the increased benefit in terms of decreased risk of heart disease that comes with uh, now people knew about the downside there they, they, that's not a case really of forgetting the downside it's misassessing the value of the upside in this case they thought they thought that the decreased risk of uh, getting a heart attack uh, was more than it from taking a daily aspirin was more than it actually is and now when you do the calculation again it turns out that the advice is not to take an aspirin a day unless you're getting on a long-distance airplane. Okay, so let me talk about statins. Again, most of you in the audience won't be worried about this, though some of us oldies uh, maybe. Some of you may even be on statins. I'm afraid I'm going to tell you it's a bad idea if you are, I think, uh, 
from my study of the evidence so far at least. You may well be advised to, by your doctor to take the statins, but what I'm going to say is independently whether it's a good idea or not. Uh, because they lower your cholesterol level, there's no doubt about that whatsoever, but you're not, you don't care about your cholesterol level, you care about whether you get, attack, whether you get a heart attack or a stroke. Um, and they'll tell you that that decreases your, but that in, lowering your cholesterol level by taking statins will decrease your risk of a heart attack or stroke by around 33%. That's fantastic. 33% reduction in my risk. I must take statins. Well, in, case we, in, in line with case three, you should always remember that there's a downside. All drugs have side effects, and statins have quite substantial side effects, which are gradually being increased. One of the problems with randomized controlled trials is that they last relatively small periods compared to the length of time that somebody's going to be taking a drug. So the, you only get, in a randomized controlled trial, the, the negative side effects that immediately pop up, as opposed to the longer-term ones. But, you know, you should intuitively, you know, without, you would seem like almost, they're not going to give, well, of course you might think of thalidomide and say that this is false, but you would think in general that doctor's not going to give you something that's going to have such strong side effects that it outweighs a 33% risk, in, risk reduction in terms of, uh, of developing a, uh, something obviously very important like a heart attack or stroke. But in fact, the 33% is a con figure is a contract uh, pushed fundamentally by pharmaceutical companies, but swallowed amazingly, in my view, by the doctors themselves. Uh, relative risk reduction should be banned, in my view. Let me explain what I mean. It's a relative risk reduction, and you don't care about the relative risk reduction, believe me. You care about the absolute risk reduction. I'll explain why in a minute. Suppose that your chance of developing a heart attack or stroke in the next five years without taking statins is 3%. So three out of 100 on average will get a heart attack or stroke in the next year without taking statins. Well, if you take statins, your chance reduces to 2%. That is, there's a 1% absolute risk reduction. Well, your, but your relative risk reduction, that is, how much of the initial risk you've now lost, is, is obviously a third. You've lost 1 out of 3%. You had 3, now you've got 2. One, uh, 1 in 3 is 33%. So you've got a 33% uh, relative risk reduction, but your absolute risk reduction is only 1%. The actual figure for statins, even on the most favourable interpretation of the evidence, and you'd have to be very optimistic to take the most favourable interpretation of the evidence, is a 2% absolute risk reduction. Well, at least this is going to, you know, if you're told that you've got a 1% risk reduction, then the issue of side effects is going to come very firmly in your mind. The issue of the downside when we're thinking in policy terms. But the 33% think, well, that's, that's, that can't be overridden. You're certainly going to have a very different view. And in fact, it's better, as good doctors will do, if these things are, are, are given, not just not in absolute risk terms, even, although these ways of giving them are, in fact, equivalent. They're better given in terms of numbers needed to treat. That is, the average number of people you'd have to treat in order to get one positive event. That's what So what, what, if, it, if there is indeed a 1% risk reduction in the absolute risk reduction sense, that means you're going to have to treat 100 people on average to get one person who gets the positive effect, that is, doesn't have the heart attack or stroke, but they would have had on the best available evidence they hadn't given this. So that means, uh, and again, you know, obviously that, with that sort of number, it, it, 
around, you're, you're going to be a lot less ready to just dismiss the possibility of side effects outweighing that. In fact, it's better still, it, the, 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 the um, statistic that I recommend is number treated ineffectively, which is just the number needed to treat minus one, because that really does bring it home. The number needed to treat in this case, if you've got a 1% absolute risk reduction, is 99. So 99 people, you'll have to treat 99 people ineffectively, that is people who don't get the benefit, people who would not, in fact, have been going to get a heart attack or a stroke anyway, in order to, in order to, to, to get one person in, in, out of that 100 who's going to have, actually have the, uh, not get the, uh, the negative outcome. I'm not saying it's not worth it. In some cases it may be, but at least it makes you think more carefully about what the downside is when you're given the figures in the right way. Okay, so lesson four is you need to take absolute risk reduction to take a sensible view of the evidence. Okay, so avoid relative risk. You want to know the absolute risk or number needed to treat or preferably the number treated ineffectively. There's always a downside and you need to take into account. Let me very briefly just do the last one. So let, let, let me just repeat that. Okay, so four simple lessons when to be an intelligent consumer of evidence. What else might it be? Ask what else might it be before you rush into thinking that there's evidence from a correlation for a causal connection. Do you have evidence against plausible rivals? Take the base rate in, uh, into account. There's always a downside. You don't want to ignore the downside. You do want to know about absolute risk reduction. Otherwise, you're likely to make the wrong decision about the relative values of the upside and the downside. Okay, let me briefly go through. This is EBM is evidence-based medicine. It's been a, a movement uh, since the 1980s. You might wonder what evidence was based on before. It only started in the 1980s and been worried about that. Uh, and indeed, that's correct. I think, it, 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 uh, unfortunately, the evidence-based movements that there have been, both in medicine and social policy, uh, have, have taken a very narrow view about what evidence is and more or less discounted everything apart from randomised controlled trials, and that's given evidence-based ideas a bad, a bad press. But obviously, we want to base it on evidence in a, in a fully nuanced sense. Um, and here's somewhere where I've got full sympathy with evidence-based medicine. Okay, so in 1999, a guy called Daniel Merenstein uh, gave a 53-year-old man a routine health checkup uh, as part of the checkup and in accordance with the evidence-based approach recommended by national guidelines, which I can't see were at all at fault here. Uh, he discussed the risks, uh, I mean, the, the, they were indeed evidence-based, discussed the risks and benefits of, the, of uh, prostate-specific antigen estimation with the patient, the same example as we had before. And the patient decided, having been told that it was not, the guidelines contraindicated it, not to have his PSA measured. Uh, he subsequently changed doctors and entirely without discussion in the old-fashioned manner had his PSA measured and of course shit happened with respect to the first thing and his PSA concentration turned out to be abnormally high and the result of advanced prostate cancer. So he sued the doctor, Merenstein, and the clinic alleging malpractice. Um, let me t give you some facts here about the evidence. Uh, there's no evidence that PSA screening reduces mortality from prostate cancer. It increases the number of people diagnosed with prostate cancer, but it doesn't reduce the mortality from prostate cancer. People who take the PSA test die equally early and equally often as those who don't, roughly speaking. Most prostate cancers are so slow-growing that they'd never be noticed except for the test. This is the basis for this guideline, that you don't do it uh, for people at least of his age. Uh, Postmortems on men older than 50 who died of natural causes show that about one in three have some form of prostate cancer. So many more people die with, uh, with prostate cancer than die of prostate cancer. 
The PSA test produces a large number of false positives, so there are a lot of people being given stress and stuff that's unnecessary, so major stress and painful follow-ups for no benefit. Men with prostate cancer are given surgery or radiation treatment that results in a substantial number of cases in serious and long-term, long, lifelong harm, such as incontinence and impotence. Remember, as I said before, many more people die with prostate cancer than die from prostate cancer. Uh, well, the victim, so-called, argued that the standard, or his lawyers did, that the standard of care to be expected when a man over 50 has a routine checkup should include a routine PSA test rather than an offer of one on the basis of a shared decision-making consultation. The, the guidelines were that if the, person, if the patient insisted, then you gave it them, but because the evidence was uh, indicated that uh, this wasn't a good idea, that you didn't routinely offer it, and indeed you'd sort of try and persuade them not to do it. Uh, four doctors from the old school were called as expert witnesses, testifying that whatever the National Greek guidelines said, they would always give routine PSA tests. Uh, rather quixotically, I think actually the US courts on the whole off, operate like a national insurance system rather than anything else in these cases. They exonerated Merenstein, uh, presumably because he was nice and young and he had a tie on and looked rather nice, but they found the guilty, the clinic, guilty of negligence. I don't quite know how that's supposed to work. Uh, but anyway, uh, Merenstein himself was mystified that a physician can be put on trial for following national guidelines, the best evidence current research, and then his clinic, if not himself, be found negligent for not following outdated and unsupported community practices, namely the practice of giving a routine PSA test, even though this, wasn't contra this was contraindicated. Okay, so what I want to draw out of this, and I've done it very quickly, it probably won't quite come out, but it's basically if you did the right thing ahead of time, you did the right thing. Another simple principle to think about when you're applying evidence to decision-making. Uh, in effect, the evidence-based guidelines for this case and in, in all, all other cases are again based on an expected utility calculation. Uh, and when you think about it, it's always possible, of course, that the low probability, high disutility event occurs. So you're weighing in an expected utility calculation the probability of getting a positive result multiplied by the, by the utility of getting a positive result, but against that there's a probability of getting a, a bad outcome and the disutility of, of, of that. It's always possible that the low probability, high, high disutility event occurs, but assuming the utilities were roughly correct and based on evidence and the probabilities are evidence-based, then if you made the right decision ahead of time, you made the right decision. You shouldn't go around regressing a decision that you made that, expect, that, that in fact maximised expected utility if the way that things turn out uh, is, is bad. You get, you get the low probability, high disutility event. Uh, it's like a friend of mine who cannot get the idea that he, that he when we play bridge together, that he, that he made the wrong decision when it turns out, I mean, it's the opposite of this, when it, when it turns out that he gets the contract or whatever, he must have done the right thing, and, even though the expert utility calculation counts against it. Okay, uh, so sim simple questions to ask about evidence. Do I have evidence for causality? You do only if you have evidence against plausible alternatives. Have I taken the base rate into account? Do I know what the prior probability? I'm, maybe I'm told that the false positive rate for this test is one in a thousand, but what's the prior chance that I've got? this disease before I start thinking that that mean, almost certainly means I've got this disease. Have I taken the downside of any policy decision and evidence for it into account? That's what came out of that sunlight robbery case, if indeed that's the way that the evidence eventually pans out, as it's looking like it might, though Cancer UK is still not convinced. Have I been misled in my weighing of the upside and the downside of some policy by, by talking about in terms of relative risk reductions rather than absolute risk reductions or numbers needed to treat or numbers treated ineffectively? 
And remember that sometimes shit happens, as people say. If you follow what was the right policy ahead of time, on the basis of the evidence, then you follow the right policy, even if it didn't turn out well. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you. So my chairman should now thank me for having kept a perfect time. We've got exactly ten minutes for discussion. So any questions that people have, I'd be glad to respond. No, thanks. I'm just imagining being on, on, on trial for murder based on the DNA evidence, and I'm actually one of the 60 out of 61 people in the country who didn't do it, but has matching DNA. Now, I'm a maths graduate, so I've got no problem following your logic there, but I'd be very interested to know, is there any evidence as to whether, in fact, you can get that logic across to your average jury or not? Well, the first thing I think is to get it to get it across to the average lawyer mm-hmm. would help, because <laughs> um, they might be able to help the jury in that case. Uh, there's evidence to the contrary He just his DNA happened to be in the database.
probability that two deaths by multiplying. But the Sally Clark case is quite clear. That's what the Meadows did. It's worrying, isn't it, that the defence didn't challenge it, and that leaves you the question of what would happen if they had. Today you talked about basically you treated the evidence as given and then went on to discuss how you use that to assess risk and come to a decision. But, of course, a lot of the times the problem is to produce the evidence and to evaluate how good that evidence is. That's a separate issue. But how can you take into account that you have conflicting evidence, uncertainty about the quality of the evidence, when you go this step further to assess risk and come to a decision? Yeah, well, you're now pointing in the direction of a whole course rather than a 45-minute quick run-through. Of course, there are those issues. And lots of interesting issues about whether that... Well, the answer is just to be up front. You've got the footage evidence, and you don't know what to say. Be very sensitive about the evidence All the cases I'm talking about here are cases where the evidence is pretty unambiguous. But there are also these issues. I mean, massive numbers. I mean, I could have given a whole lecture on Professor Nutt, of course, who was a scientist. And it is threatening in cases like that. So whether you really can do what I said right at the beginning and you separate out... It's harder work than you might imagine. I think Campbell did it. To separate out the factual and the normative. I haven't read what he says when he's being serious. I don't think it would be a sound answer. But when he says, for example, that alcohol is more dangerous than cannabis, if he says that, then that looks like a factual statement. But more dangerous than is a very, very doubtful term. And clearly, when you think about it, again, it's going to involve base rates and stuff. I mean, I'm not doubting it's true that there are more people who are admitted to hospitals in the UK because of alcohol abuse than there are cannabis abuse. But I don't think it falls to that. It's a funny notion, more dangerous than. I mean, if there are 3,000 times more people who are more, if there are 10,000 times more people using alcohol than are using cannabis, then it's not clear that the fact of that would be more people. So there's a lot to be said. Part of it, the way you get caught on it, is the way you can touch on today, including the ones you read. So I certainly admit it. It's not by any means. I hope I said what I was doing. You should base yourself on evidence if you can. And obviously one of the situations in which you can't is if you've got conflicting evidence that you so far haven't resolved. Okay. 
Um, I'm glad you, you, uh, you brought up the point about how uh, we sometimes, um, sometimes evidence and our, our own particular value judgments influence our interpretation of it. But sometimes low probability um, events carry such a more than proportionate level of, of disutility that, um, so it, for example, it's better to let many guilty people go free than to kill an and innocent man, even though the statistics. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, well, all I would say is, you know, in that case, don't forget the upside as well. I mean, don't do anything silly like adopt this so-called precautionary principle that says you should never do anything if it's possible that you have a terrible outcome. I mean, that, that's crazy. I mean, you want to be an expected utility theorist. I'm not... You do have to take the up. I mean, if I was giving a lecture about the precaution principle, I'd be saying, don't forget the upside. Um, you know, if, if don't, you can't just want to. If you're operating on the principle of eliminating the possibility of a terrible thing happening, you, you more or less know There's a very fine book by Dick Tavern called The March of Unreason, where, amongst others, he makes that point, amongst, amongst others. Yeah, but sure. I mean, you, know, you, you, you obviously do fall. I mean, that's why people don't want straightforward Bayesian analysis in the law, because there is an implicit judgment that's, that's common in our society that says that it's much better to uh, let a, a guilty man go free than to jail an innocent man. So you aren't looking necessarily in criminal cases, at any rate, or you do in civil cases, to maximise the probability that, that going to be right because you, you take it you like the, the disutility of jailing them. the disutility to a, an innocent jailed man is much higher and I'm not quite sure how that would work but anyway yeah I agree with you we're at 5-2 we're supposed to clear out thank you very much for your questions I enjoyed giving the talk thank you very much.